Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my latest project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the Scriptures. The Word Diet is good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. It's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but it's aimed at novices and strugglers, those who haven't read the Bible before. More information is available about the the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. We're in the book of Genesis, an absolutely outstanding book to read and study. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Last week, we got into uh, the beginning of Genesis, our first week in Genesis, did an introduction, talked about chapter 1, verse 1, and then talked at length about creation, evolution, and the Big Bang. You can catch that show and all previous Word Diet shows on Spotify, SoundCloud, or iTunes. On today's show, we'll be ranging further into Genesis 1. Probably the biggest topic here is the debate on old earth versus young earth, and so I'll detail that uh, as best I can. Big topic there, and uh, we'll range, I think, as far as the sixth day of creation and verse 25. Lord, be with us today. Help me have a clear mind and a clear tongue. Help people have ears that can hear what's being said. And uh, we pray that all of this would help us understand who you are and the great world that you've created and what you want for us and from us. Please pray for the Pure Radio Network, the station, and this show. We'll take a break before we get rolling. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Genesis 1 today, and we're following up on last week's show where we introduced Genesis and talked at great length about chapter 1, verse 1, as well as creation and evolution and the debates there. If you're interested in that podcast, want to refer you to The Word Diet at Spotify or on iTunes, we'll read verses 1 and 2 to get rolling today. Verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So verse 1, we talked at great length about each of the words in that great verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. By way of review, it's good to read Hebrews 11.3 here as well. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Now, in verse 2, the most interesting phrase here, most important phrase, I think, is formless and empty. So that's speaking of chaos with the Hebrew term tohu, and then emptiness, which is the Hebrew term bohu. So you've got tohu and bohu. I think the first question that comes to mind is, how can you have chaos and emptiness at the same time? And I'm not sure I understand the science behind all that, but in terms of uh, spiritual matters, uh, we do have reference to this. First Peter 1.18, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. And outside of God, outside of Christ and grace, there's a, certainly a sense in which there's both chaos and emptiness occurring at the same time. This phrase also gives structure to the rest of Genesis 1, 
in dividing the six days of creation into two sets of three work days. The first three largely give form to the chaos or tohu, and the second three days largely are about filling the emptiness, which is that reference to bohu. In verses 3 through 10 and days 1 through 3a, God is mostly creating by separating and gathering to give the earth form. The second half is in verses 11 through 26, which is largely creating and making stuff and allowing things to fill it. This is the second half of day 3 through day 6. Isaiah 45, 18, for this is what the Lord says, he who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Something that will be very clear when we get to Genesis 3, and I'll talk about it at great length there, is that sin returns earth and life toward tohu and bohu, towards formless and empty. Again, the reference to 1 Peter 1.18 is describing unbelievers in that sense. But we see it even in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 4, verses 23 through 26. I looked at the earth, and it was formless and empty, and at the heavens, and their light was gone. I looked at the mountains, and they were quaking. All the hills were swaying. I looked, and there were no people. Every bird in the sky had flown away. I looked, and the fruitful land was a desert. All its towns lay in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. And so here, the prophet is talking about uh, the destruction and devastation of the people going into exile and what their sin had done to the nation and to world history. So since we worship a God of redemption, what does this mean for us? Well, one implication is that if God created out of chaos and emptiness, if sin returns to chaos and emptiness, then creation, recreation, redemption indicate that our mission is taking things from being formless and empty and chaotic to fullness, order, and beauty. God is in the redemption business. We're made in his image. And so when sin has taken things towards tohu and bohu, towards chaos and emptiness. Our mission through Christ, through the Spirit, is to take chaos and emptiness and turn it into fullness, order, and beauty. Verse 2 continues with a reference to darkness and an ocean-like reference. You've got the deep and the waters. The first thing to say here is that the waters are already here. They've been created, apparently, in verse 1. They're not explicitly created in verse 2. They've already shown up. And the second is that by connecting the waters and the deep and chaos and emptiness and all that, this is a reference we'll see throughout Scripture, that the waters and the deep are at least a metaphor for chaos or even evil. One of the things that's interesting to consider, and we'll wrestle with this again in Genesis 3, is when did Satan and company rebel? And it's possible that that has already occurred here. The waters and the darkness will also disappear in Revelation at the end of time. So it's interesting to see them appear here and be dealt with, uh, and then be dealt with finally in the book of Revelation. Verse 2 ends with the Spirit of God hovering over the waters as the apparent agent of creation in this uh, telling of it. The hovering over the waters is a picture of waiting, observing, anticipating, and of an entity in control. Later, this same metaphor is used of a bird and an eagle in particular protecting its young. Now, for our purposes, this completes the Trinity in creation. We saw last week how Jesus is a part of the creation. This is mentioned in John 1 and Colossians 1. And the spirit hovering is certainly reminiscent of 
Mary, and Jesus. Eugene Peterson notes that the Spirit is present and responsible for three key formative works, the beginning of holy creation here, holy salvation in Mark 1, and holy community in Acts 2 at Pentecost. It's interesting to see the Spirit and the later connections to word and breath in Genesis 1. You've got hovering and presumably wind, which is connected to the words and language of creation here in Genesis 1. Something similar in Mark 1, you have the dove and you have the voice of God's approval. And then in Acts 2, again, you have the tongues of fire and language. So in each case, you've got movement, uh, wind or the appearance of wind, and the use of language at all three of these key moments in biblical history. Okay. Now that we've uh, dealt with verses 1 and 2, it's time to move forward into the creation itself and the details there. We want to start with the creative pattern of these six days before we dig into the details. So to illustrate the pattern, I'm going to read uh, day 1, verses 3 through 5. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now, there are exceptions to the pattern, but there's also a general pattern that's easy to discern here. There's a creative word. God said, and then let there be are the famous words here. And so God is creating merely by speaking. Revelation 4.11 says it's by your will they were created, right? But the mechanism we're given here in Genesis is by God's word, by his creative word. And this is followed by a fulfillment word, a report of the effort God made or created, and there was, or it was so, right? So the God says something, uh, God does something, and then it happens. Many other things to say about this. First of all, in the speaking, but especially in the making or creating, this reiterates that God is separate from aspects of his creation. There's no room for pantheism here. Second, it's mysterious in its lack of detail. We'd like to know how God made and created, but we're not given that. We're just told that he said it, made it, and it happened. Of course, this points to God's power and his authority. Nahum Sarna says, this is the expression of the omnipotent, sovereign, unchallengeable will of the absolute, transcendent God to whom all nature is completely subservient. A.W. Tozer, the word of God is quick and powerful. In the beginning, he spoke to nothing and it became something. Chaos heard it and became order. Darkness heard it and became light. And God said, and it was so. These twin phrases as cause and effect occur throughout the Genesis story of the creation. The said accounts for the so. Another key point here is the value of words in a biblical worldview. Truth, speaking, etc. For God and for us. But it's not just speaking, it's connected to action as well. As Matthew Henry points out though, with us saying and doing are two different things. So for God, saying and doing are the same thing, in essence. For us, they're often different things. We call that hypocrisy or failure to follow through on commitments or the like. And this is, I think, a great challenge for us, that saying and doing should be the same thing for us. When it's said, it should be done. That's how it is with our God. It's also interesting here that there's no sense of struggle between God and nature or any sense of a rivalry between nature and God. The pagan myths that Judaism is coming uh, into being, and the Bible has its origins in contrast to those, 
the pagan myths uh, paint such pictures, but that's, we don't see any of that here. It's also interesting that the word uh, is then followed by the deed. And again, at least in human terms, this hints at the importance of persuasion rather than just coercion, right? The word happens and then the deed happens as if there's a cause and effect there. William Dembski says words have the power to engender deeds by finding a receptive medium. And ultimately, we're not coerced uh, into doing things, right? There's persuasion, there's free will that are an important part of the peace for us and the people we deal with in everyday life. The next part of the pattern is naming and labeling, that God called it something. It gives it significance. It implies ownership and dominion. When we see God naming things throughout the Bible, man will do it with the animals in chapter 2. Abram is renamed Abraham in chapter 17. Jacob is renamed Israel in chapter 32. Saul is renamed uh, Paul. Uh, Pharaoh renames Joseph. Daniel and his buddies are renamed in the book of Daniel. And then the new name of Revelation 2.17 all speak to this theme that calling something, labeling it, implies your ownership, dominion, intimacy, and care. Now, the labeling only occurs in 1 through 3. In days 3 through 6, we get the famous evaluation and commendation that God saw that it was good. Saw is kind of interesting when we're talking about an omnipotent being that he needs to see anything is kind of strange. But we're given this picture, and it's as if God's studying and carefully observing it as part of his evaluation, right? It's not a cavalier, ah, it was good. Uh, It's as if he's observing it and studying it before he gives that evaluation. This implies both the complexity of creation and the care of the creator. It also implies an objective standard, as if even there's something outside of God. This is something that's argued for in the field of natural law or something that could be verified outside of God. It comes from God, but there also uh, is a standard that God is referring to that seems to be outside of himself or uh, somehow directly related to himself. And again, if we're made in God's image, then apparently we're supposed to look and see if things are good or bad or not. A lot of times we say something's good or bad before seeing it. It reminds me of a kid who says, I don't like mushrooms. Have you ever had mushrooms? No. Well, maybe you shouldn't say that it's good or bad. So we should see it and study it before we give our evaluations. And it also implies we should be careful to say something is good or bad when God has rendered judgment about it being good or bad. We need to line up our judgments with what God's judgments are. Now, what about the word good? Everything created by God is good. We'll see this phrase appear a number of times in Genesis 1, with a culmination of everything was very good in chapter 1, verse 31, after the sixth day. Uh, Things are not so good in chapter 2, verse 18, when man is alone. And then, of course, things are not good at all in the fall of man in Genesis 3. A great verse here is James 1, 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. A few thoughts here. Again, the modest understatement. We talked about this in chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, that's all it needs to be said by way of summary. Something here is very similar, right? Very modest. Yeah, it's good. It's also interesting in contrast to the other creative people we focus on on earth, artists and writers. They are and can never be satisfied. We don't produce perfect things. Uh, artists and writers are often reluctant to say something is good. It always needs something more. There's always a word to edit. There's always something to add to a painting 
or a sculpture. Good is also a great word that's full of hope and promise for what is intended here in God's good creation. And finally, a little bit of wrestling on what does it mean to say something is good, especially in light of chapter 2, verse 18, where it says it's not good for man to be alone. How can God create something that is not good or a moment that is not good? So one angle out of this is a different translation. So the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, chose the word kalon, which means beautiful, over the more literal translation here. Uh, so instead of invoking good, which has all sorts of interesting angles that could be pursued, uh, the, the Greek translation is merely beautiful, which stays away from these questions. I think what we can say for now, and there's more to be said about this later, is that it is perfect in terms of quality uh, and completeness, uh, and it's ready for function and purpose. That is different from moral goodness or other forms of goodness that are out there. Uh, it's complete in itself, but maybe other things need to be added. Uh, so, uh, it, but what does moral goodness mean, right? Can a, a plant be morally good? So I think, I think there are limits to the word good here, and I uh, don't have an answer for you at this point, but just to get you to wrestle with what, is, what does it mean when it says it is good. Last thought on good is that it implies God is good, which is central to Jewish and Christian theology. Hebrews 11:6, without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Right? God is benevolent. God's goodness is mentioned well before his justice, Genesis 18, or his love, Genesis 24, and his goodness radiates into every other tribute. It reminds me of C.S. Lewis when Tumnus is talking about Aslan, and he gets the question, is he safe? And Tumnus replies, no, but he's good. God's goodness is crucial to our theology. And the last thing in the pattern here is the concluding word. There's an order, evening before morning, and then a day is numbered, which establishes the division of time, which allows us to talk about history. All right, time for a break. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of this ministry. Spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the first segment, we talked about verses 1 and 2 of Genesis 1, and then we talked about the creative pattern starting in verse 3 with the six days of creation. Now we want to dig into the details of each day, starting with day 1, verses 3 through 5 of Genesis 1. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. So verse 3 is the first act, calling out light from darkness. And it results in evening and then morning. You might think it'd be morning and then evening if light is preceding dark. Maybe this is just uh, an indication of the poetic nature of Genesis 1, but I don't think it's what you would expect. I don't have a great answer beyond that, but it's at least interesting. Another interesting question, again, we'll wrestle more with this later, is Satan's fall connected to either the chaos of verse 2 or the light-dark references here in 3 through 5, but that's a topic for a different day. Verse 3, let there be light, and then it's created. Verse 4 indicates that there's a separation here as if oil from water. A.W. Tozer says the first divider was God, who at the creation divided the light from the darkness. This division set the direction for all God's dealings in nature and in grace. 
Light and darkness are incompatible. To try to have both in the same place at once is to try the impossible and end by having neither the one nor the other. More broadly, this speaks to the importance of division, separateness, distinction, distinctiveness as holiness uh, as an important theme, both God's and hopefully ours as well. Now, is this related to the sun? Well, the sun doesn't show up until the fourth day. We'll have a lot to say about that shortly. Uh, If it's the case that the sun is part of this story, then apparently there's been a change in the atmosphere from opaque, maybe in verse 3, to translucent in verse 4, and then maybe in day 4 it becomes transparent. In any case, day 1's light is sufficient for day 3's plants to grow. Of course, this is also indicative of God's order. The day and night uh, precedes the plants that will show up in day 3. And maybe there's a connection here with the Spirit of God back in verse 2 providing the light. In a nutshell, we're not really sure what to do with this. And skeptics, of course, chuckle and have some fun with uh, verse 3 and the first day versus the fourth day and the light versus the sun. But I think one thing we can say here is the author, redactor, arranger of Genesis probably would have anticipated these kind of questions in advance, and God, of course, as well. And they don't really care, right? That God and the writer of this uh, are not embarrassed by this for whatever reason, despite uh, the easy questions that could be asked here by skeptics. Here's what we do know. The, f- the sun is first in other creation myths. And so one of the things that Genesis 1 through 11 is doing is, is talking trash about pagan myths. We'll talk about this when we get to the end of chapter 11. If the sun was a common subject of worship, then it's a brilliant, bold, rhetorical move to put the sun late in creation. Rhetorically, it makes clear that the sun is subservient to both God and the light. Second, light is necessary to make God's works visible and to make life possible for us. You think about Proverbs 8, 22 through 31, which describes the role of wisdom. And wisdom, of course, is a way for us, for life to make sense to us, for light to shine on life. Or think about verses like 2 Corinthians 4, 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Christ himself says, John 3.21, but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Or Christ again in John 11 verses 9 and 10, Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble for they have no light. Or think about Exodus with the plague of darkness for all except the Israelites. Think about the pillar of fire in Exodus 13 that leads the Israelites through the wilderness. As Matthew Henry notes, in the creation of grace as of the world, the first thing created is light. We also know about the light of heaven, Revelation 21:23 and Revelation 22:5. We know that hell is pictured as darkness, Matthew 8:12, Matthew 22:13, and we know that earth is a mixture of both light and darkness. John 1:5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John 3:19, this is the verdict: light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And so life on earth is pictured as a metaphor of both light and darkness. 
It also provides us another opening hint about the important biblical theme of redemption, that light, creation, beauty, and value are to be created by God and by us out of darkness and chaos. This is not just true of Israel, but the early church and our lives and the church as a whole. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. The other big topic that gets introduced here is the idea of a day. It's mentioned in verse 5, and it will be repeated many other times as well. And what do we do with this? It can be interpreted literally as a 24-hour day uh, or figuratively for some indefinite period. I think our first pass at this would be to read it like a literal day. Uh, We see references here as well to morning and evening, which get us to think that way. Uh, But we also know from Psalm 90 verse 4 and 2 Peter 3, 8, that with the Lord a day is like a thousand years. And we also know that God is outside of time. We saw that already in Genesis 1.1. So we also want to take care. We also know that the scriptures uh, have many different literature types. And so maybe something is different is going on here. So this debate is called the old earth versus the young earth creationism. And creationism means that there's a creator. It's interesting when skeptics use the term creationist, they're almost always referring to young earth creationists, and that's them being sloppy with the language. All Christians are creationists, right? We all believe that God created the heavens and the earth, uh, but there is this debate between old earth and young earth. The debate's not over who, it's a disagreement about how and when. There's three categories of evidence that I want to uh, play with here a little bit scientific evidences, historical interpretations, and biblical options. I'm going to give you a brief overview of the first two, and I'm going to then focus on the third. Uh, The science and the history are above my pay grade. I want to give you a sense of the debate on those, but I'm very comfortable with the biblical pieces of this, and we'll focus on that after our next break. Uh, You might be saying, look, this is not a big deal to me. But kind of like last week's topic with creation and evolution, it is a big deal for evangelism, for ministry, for stumbling blocks, especially for those heading off to college. And I would say that if you do care and you want to be dogmatic on this, make sure to read the best of both sides. There's great literature out there. If you want to read about uh, the old earth view, you can read John Lennox, John Walton, or Hugh Ross. If you want to read the young earth view, uh, Ken Ham, Walter Brown, and others. There's plenty of good literature out there, but don't just read the one side of the argument or the critiques of one side of the other. Read the best of the other side if it's important to you and if you want, if it's important to you to be dogmatic on the topic. So let's deal with the science and then the history. On the science, you know, I read these different things and I'm just not that kind of doctor. I'm not that kind of scientist. When I read Ken Ham and Walter Brown, it sounds pretty good to me. When I read Hugh Ross, uh, John Walton, sounds pretty good to me. If I read only Hugh Ross or only read Walter Brown, then I would probably draw, you know, certain firm conclusions. But the fact of the matter is when I read both, I just can't figure it out. I'll tell you one resource I really like. It's uh, Gerald Schroeder, who's a physicist, wrote a book called The Science of God. Chapters 3 and 4 are particularly useful. But he's also got an article on AISH.com called The Age of the Universe, One Reality from Two Different Perspectives. And again, the science here is also beyond my ability, my pay grade. But 
it kind of half makes sense to me, which is about all I'm going to get when I'm looking at physics. But he, here's his angle. He says we look back in time and measure 14 billion years of cosmic history since the Big Bang creation of our universe. How would those years be measured from the Bible's perspective looking forward from the beginning? This is a totally non-human view of time. The amazing reality of time in our magnificent universe is that the perspective of the time for a series of events compresses as we project that perspective back in time. And it compresses, contracts, gets shorter, exactly as the size of the universe compresses as we go back in time. So we pause here, right? We know the universe is expanding. And so this Schroeder's point is our sense of time is going to be different if we're looking from the perspective of the center of the universe, the beginning of time going forward, rather than from our perspective, standing on Earth looking backwards. Schroeder continues, if we can calculate the magnitude of the expansion of the universe from the start of the biblical calendar six days to now, we can calculate how the 14 billion years would appear from the perspective of the Bible. The key word here is perspective. We are calculating the age of the universe from two vastly different perspectives. The Bible's perspective looking forward from the beginning when the universe was vastly smaller than now, our perspective looking back with the universe being vastly larger than in the era near the creation. They are two views of one reality. So this gets to Einstein's relativity of time. And Schroeder, I'm not going to go through it here, but Schroeder has some really cool calculations that in essence argue that it's both and, that it's both old Earth and young Earth. It's young Earth from the perspective of the center of the universe as it was created, and it's old Earth uh, from our perspective today on Earth. The second category is historical interpretation. And I'm more comfortable reading any given history. My problem here is the vastness of historical coverage. And I just have scratched the surface on that literature. So that's where my lack of comfort drawing inferences comes from with respect to history. And both the old and young earthers claim history is on their side. The old earthers claim that Philo, Josephus, and 11 of the 12 early church fathers who addressed the topic talked about old earth and that opposition arose not when early 19th century geology pointed to old earth, but Darwin's claim of man's descent from apes. So there wasn't a problem when there was a question about when. It was when Darwin questioned who created and that man was specially created that uh, the old earthers began to to, uh, rise up and, and make a bigger deal of it. The young earthers, on the other hand, claim that old earth is rarely, if ever, defended prior to the 19th century. My guess is that the truth is actually in between. As Ross and Archer put it, there's little attention to the length of creation days from the early church fathers, that they just didn't spend much time on it. Uh, They go on to say, the older writings are devoid of passionate certainty and dogmatism about the length of the creation days. Rather, they evidence a tentativeness and exhibit tolerance on the point. Along those lines, Augustine said, what sort of days these were, it is very difficult or perhaps impossible for us to conceive. And I think that's probably it, that they weren't dogmatic. So there's not much going to be written about it from either a young earth or an old earth's perspective. But the lack of dogmatism, the, the tentativeness is maybe something we can learn from. More broadly, we've gotten to bigger questions. What is the role of extra biblical science and archaeology and church history and tradition in helping us interpret the scripture? Biblically, God reveals himself through nature. Consider passages like Psalm 19, 1-4, and Romans 1-20, but how good are we at reading that book? God reveals himself through history, but how good are we at understanding his activity in history? God reveals himself through his word. 
How good are we at interpreting it? So we have these pieces of evidence, nature, history, and the word. Uh, we've got God's spirit indwelling us. We have all these evidences. How do we put them together to figure these things out? The other complication is that there are biases and preconceived notions within scientific, historical, and biblical interpretation. And then with respect to science, we're also hamstrung in that by definition, it's difficult for science to detect and understand the kind of processes God would have used, right? What we would call the miraculous. And so science in being mostly limited to the natural realm is going to struggle there. So I think at the end of the day, we're kind of stuck here and we do the best we can looking at science and history as they aid us in trying to help us understand and interpret the word of God and what actually happened. All right, let's take a break here. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Podcasts are available on Facebook, SoundCloud, Spotify, and iTunes. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Genesis 1 today, and in the last segment, we talked about verses 3 through 5, and we were getting into the debate over the term day, which is called the young earth versus old earth debate. And I covered the science and the history a bit. It was really a surface view of those things. I'm not great at science. I'm not great at history uh, for, for different reasons. And so all the best I could do is give you an overview, I think, of the debate and the discussion and some resources to consider. But where I can give you more definitive answers is in what the Bible says about the word day. The Hebrew word here is yom, and we want to wrestle with how it's translated and understood in Genesis 1 and 2 and beyond. Now, the old earth case takes more time to lay out biblically. It's more complicated and less familiar. But in a nutshell, it observes that the, the term yom is used five or six different ways just in Genesis 1 and 2. We see two of them right here in verse 5. Yom is used both in the sense of the daylight part of a day, early in verse 5, and then later in verse 5, it's used to describe a complete day. We see the same combination in chapter 1, verses 14 through 19 with the fourth day. If you think about the former, even that's sort of strange, right? That uh, at a place in time, at a point in time, it's day in some places and night in other places, you know, different hemispheres, for example. So it seems weird to think about evening and morning as a global consideration at all. And the other thing is the sun hasn't even been created yet in uh, day four. Speaking of that, it's even strange to talk about whole days at this point without the sun. That's the traditional way to measure days. So that's not fatal to the literal 24-hour day, but it is strange, at least in light of how we usually think about days. The third use of yom I want to talk about is in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, the seventh day. And it's interesting that it doesn't mention a morning and an evening, unlike the other creative pattern that we see in days 1 through 6. And again, that's not necessarily anything, but it's odd that it shows up six times and does not show up the seventh time. It's also interesting in light of the way the seventh day is treated elsewhere in the scriptures. So, for example, in Hebrews 3 and 4, it talks about a rest, a Sabbath rest that comes. And so many commentators take that the seventh day, at least in one sense, is extended at least until Christ's first coming. So obviously that's more than a 24-hour period. But there are other verses where it is treated more literally. So if you look at Exodus 20, the fourth commandment motivation of the Sabbath is the seventh day, which seems to take it quite literally. Another verse along those lines is Leviticus 8.33. But in Leviticus 25.8, the term yom is used to refer to the jubilee, which was a year. 
after 49 years of Sabbath rest for the land. So again, even there's flexibility other places in the law. Or think about the way Jesus uses it in John 5, 16 and 17. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. So what does work and rest mean in light of the Sabbath and in light of the seventh day and God resting? So the seventh day seems longer. It's also possible the first day is longer. Uh, It's translated in the NIV as the first day, but literally it means one day. As P.H. Reardon puts it, because it's elevating that day of creation to something more than part of a sequence. One is not simply the numeral that precedes two. It is rather the number out of which that second number comes. One is the font determining the identity of two and the subsequent numbers. One is not just first as part of a sequence. It is what we call a principle. So day one may have also been 24 hours, and it's at least a special day, but maybe it's also a day of a different length as well. Another use of yom appears in chapter 2, verse 4. The NIV translates it when, but literally it means in the day, in the yom. And clearly that is more than one day, that reference. And then in chapter 2, verse 17, the word uh when, again translated by the NIV, is literally in that day, in that yom. And there it implies a moment. In that moment when you eat the apple, the fruit, you will die. It's in a moment. So in a nutshell, we've got at least five different meanings for yom just in Genesis 1 and 2. Now typically, yom is translated as day by the NIV 950 times or days, plural, 474 times, but there are numerous other singular and plural words available. So biblically, there's no need to insist on the day, meaning a literal 24-hour day. There are two other substantial questions to get to here. The first is, how did Adam complete all of the day six tasks and feel a profound sense of boredom and loneliness in less than 24 hours. If day six is literally a 24-hour day, and if Adam doesn't show up until sometime during the 24-hour day, that seems like a lot of stuff to get done and to feel boredom and loneliness. Now, you can insert your own man joke here, but that just seems um, impossible. Uh, Archer notes that Linnaeus took several decades to classify all the species known to Europe. And there were more by then, but there's no tradition to help Adam name them. This would have been an immense task for Adam to name all the animals. And humans are limited even in a pre-fallen state. Adam was not limited by sin at that point, but he was still limited as a human being. I think the other thing theologically that's really troubling here is that if the God was in no hurry with creation, he created in six days after all, was not instantaneous. If he saw that it was good, why would he want Adam to be rushed to have a complete divine revelation on his work rather than to study it carefully, to learn science, to enjoy it and admire it? Why would we imagine that God wants that done in two and a half hours? As Ross and Archer put it, as God introduces Adam to the three levels of his creation, the physical, the soulish, and the spiritual, he teaches and prepares Adam for life on earth and for the care and keeping of the land, the plants, and the animals. Throughout scripture, we see that God offers no shortcuts to experience knowledge, discipline, and maturity. But somehow on the first day of Adam's life, all that's out the window. 
I th so I think the young earth assumption here is extra biblical and difficult to reconcile with what we know theologically about God. Uh, to me, this is the hardest thing to square about the young earth interpretation. The last consideration is that there are a number of biblical references to the earth's antiquity. For example, Habakkuk 3.6, he stood and shook the earth, he looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed, but he marches on forever. Or 2 Peter 3.5, but they deliberately forgot that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. As an old friend of mine, Randy Baker, said, the Bible uses the antiquity of the founding of the earth as a suitable metaphor for God's eternality. If the earth is only 144 hours older than the human race, this metaphor loses its force. So again, that doesn't cinch the deal, but it does resonate with me. It just seems unlikely that the earth is merely 144 hours older than Adam and Eve. The toughest thing for the old earth interpretation are verses like Romans 5, 12, 1 Corinthians 15, 21, and 22, where Paul is talking about sin and death being connected. Romans 5, 12, for example, therefore just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all people because all had sinned. And as you might imagine, the old earth uh, folks interpret this with some finesse. They read it more figuratively, read it as metaphor. As you might imagine, there's quite a bit of ink spilled trying to reconcile this. Uh, I've got stuff in my notes, but it's not worth going into. I've got a book on my shelf by Ronald Osborne, for example, called Death Before the Fall. Haven't read yet, but uh, that's, that's the biggest trouble, I think, for old earth to get around. So what are the possibilities? Let's sum this up. I think a Christian can believe in literal days with young earth scientific evidences. They can believe in figurative days with either a day-age explanation um, and using also old earth scientific evidence. Uh, you can go with Schroeder's both and, the physicist I talked about earlier, that uh, from both a cosmic uh, center of the universe perspective and an earthly perspective, you can have both the 15 billion year perspective and the six day perspective through Schroeder's physics. You've got some stuff with literary framework, uh, and we'll talk more about that later when we get after Genesis 11. You've also got the a possibility of God creating with literal or figurative days and apparent age, the idea that God created things with apparent age. I think the most troubling thing for people in this is that it seems like God is being deceptive. If he creates things that look old but really aren't, then that's troubling for God revealing himself through nature. And uh, it it seems like God is uh, deceptive a bit. But on the other hand, it almost has to be to some level, right? When God created rocks, how old did they look? When God created Adam and Eve, he didn't create them as embryos. He created them as adults. Uh, there were probably mature trees and plants being created. The other thing that's really intriguing here, I think, is that the first miracle, John 2, in the ministry of Jesus, follows John 1, Christ as, creation, uh, as part of creation. John 2 is the wedding and the wine, and in that, Christ creates something with apparent age. So again, maybe that's just a coincidence. Maybe God's putting in a subtle hint in the text. I don't know, but it, it's interesting that apparent age uh, it occurs so early in the ministry of Jesus as well. In any case, there's no reason to be dogmatic here except to say that we're really not sure. A lot of times, uh, young earthers are more dogmatic on this, and so old earthers should consider them to be uh, weaker brothers on this.
course, uh, the old earthers are viewed as, as compromisers, as these things usually go. Uh, but both should be patient with each other as far as they can handle it. Uh, neither of these should be stumbling blocks for non-Christians or for Christians. And in fact, for ministry and evangelism, should be able to voice both of these. You should be able to enunciate both a young earth and an old earth perspective. This should not be a stumbling block that keeps people out of heaven. Instead, we should focus on not the time of creation, but the fact of creation. We should focus on Genesis 1-1 and the who of creation more than the how and the when. And we should focus on uh, talking about the limits of evolutionary mechanisms, which ultimately are uh, much more destructive than any of this debate can be. All right, a good place to take a break here. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org. Spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Genesis 1 today, and we've spent the bulk of our time in 1 through 5 of chapter 1, and also a lengthy discussion of old earth versus new earth, uh, historically and scientifically a bit, mostly on the uh, biblical uh, debate and interpretations that are available to us. This is also a good point to say, look, there's a lot of fancy theories and ideas so far, but note that Genesis 1 is and must be accessible to those without a lot of these sorts of uh, intellectual advantages. So keep in mind that all sorts of people have read, continue to read Genesis in a much more simple manner. And so we shouldn't take uh, ourselves too seriously or these debates too seriously, read the scriptures for what they offer on many levels and don't get too excited about the nitty gritty. All right, let's move to verses 6 through 13 and pick up days 2 and 3. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered in one place, and like dry ground appear, and it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to the various kinds, and it was so. The land produced vegetation plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with a seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. So verses 6 through 8, day 2, divides cosmic space, the atmosphere, and what the NIV renders the sky. Interestingly, the Hebrew word is the same one translated heavens in verse 1. 9 and 10 has the first half of day 3, dividing the earthly space into dry ground and seas, so all of this is creating the space in which people would live and controlling the weather and precipitation. Verses 11 through 13 is the second half of day three. That's vegetation of certain types. As Matthew Henry observes, building of the house. And now we've got the spreading of the table. This sets the table for the appearance of animals and eventually man with something for them to eat. Uh, specifically, it's producing grain and fruit trees. We could uh, insert a joke here about these were created first to help keep us regular. Uh, more interesting theological point of these are the foundations of bread and wine when combined with human activity. The significance of the third day, figuratively, three is really important. So these things being created on the first day, uh, the third day rather, are noteworthy. 
And the first living things are set apart and holy, grain and fruit trees of non-animal um, human varieties would be the most interesting things to create early. And that's what we see here on day three. 11 and 12, you probably caught the phrase according to their kinds. So there's an order within reproduction. We'll see the same language used in verses 21, 24, and 25 with the animals. All right, on to verses 14 through 19, which is day four. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God, God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. So if days one through three was preparation, days four through six is population. We've also got a, a movement from stationary objects to things that move around. So there's at least the perception of progressively increasing freedom. We'll start with heavenly bodies and their fixed orbits. We'll move to animal instincts and ultimately to human free will. We also saw on day one, the light of verses three through five now becomes the lights, plural, of verses 14 and 15. And they're specified more so, but it's interesting that they're still not named. They're the sun, the moon, and the stars, verse 16, even though the sun and the moon are not given their names here, which is interesting. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Verse 14 tells us the purpose to mark the seasons. This is the original sign of God's will. And they're later applied to festivals and dating them. Uh, in a sense, this gives us our schedule, our daily, monthly, other sorts of schedules. Verse 17, another purpose is to give light. We saw that back in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Verse 18, to govern or rule the day and night. And again, revisiting the idea of separating light from darkness. Psalm 136, verse 9, talks about governing the night. So a couple of things come out of this discussion that we need to get to. One is, were the stars created or do they just appear on day four? Could be that they just have not become visible until now. Now, Cass notes that all of the peculiarities of Genesis 1 surround the sun. Light, time, and vegetation are all introduced without the sun. And he concludes that God and the author intend something beyond the purely historical. The sun and moon are created on the fourth day explicitly rather than the first day when light appears. Verse 16, the sun and moon are avoided by name and they're given governance over day and night, not man and earth. All of this seems to be pointing to lessening the probability of their worship as false deities. It would be natural to worship impressive parts of nature. And so God seems to be working against this from the very beginning, and also in contrast to the pagan myths. As P.H. Reardon puts it, the setting and rising of the sun are not what determine day and night. In biblical thought, the sun marks the day. It does not create it. Or as Leon Cass puts it, these are not living gods, but lifeless creatures. They're not even named by God. They're presented as merely useful for the earth. Their rule extends only over day and night, not over the earth and man. Day one through three's light, time, and even vegetation are presented as not requiring the sun. It's not heaven, but day six is man, which has the closest relationship to God. 
Yes, it's a stunning star-studded sphere to which ancient peoples looked with awe and fear, but it is and was not deserving of such respect. Okay, that takes us to chapter 1, verses 20 through 25, day 5, and the first half of day 6. And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea, and every living and moving thing with which the water teems, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water and the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. So on the fifth day, the aquatic and air creatures are created. It's interesting that verse 21 is the second use of the Hebrew word bara. I mentioned this last week that it occurs three times in Genesis 1. Verse 1 with the creation of all things. Here in verse 21 with the creation of living things. And then verse 27 with the creation of mankind. And as we talked about last week, it's interesting because those are exactly the three barriers that an atheist has to have tremendous faith. They have to have belief in the creation of all, they have to have belief in the creation of life, and they have to have creation in the uh, about, and they have to have faith about the creation of mankind. Where do these things come from? So we have there the fields of physics, biochemistry, and biology. As we talked about, uh, the explanations simply aren't there. It's a matter of faith for them, and for the believer, the Christian, the Jew, right, have these references in chapter 1 that are interesting that there's a special word for creation used to get over those three humps. The other thing we see in this passage is repeatedly for the fifth and the sixth day land animals which are created, that everything is in their kind. So it definitely underlines God's sovereignty, God's uh, sense of order as he's creating life on earth and setting the table for the creation of man in the next few verses. I'll read those verses to close out. We'll talk about them next week. But chapter 26 or 28 is the end of day six, the creation of mankind. Then God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. There'll be so much to say about that next week. So look forward to that on the next episode of The Word Diet. In the meantime, Lord, be with us. Thank you for Genesis 1 and what it tells us about your wonderful creation. We thank you so much for your word and for your power and your works in nature and history. Help us to live a life worthy of the calling we've received. In Jesus' name, amen. Great to be with you today. If you want old episodes, you can check those out on Facebook, SoundCloud, Spotify, and iTunes under The Word Diet, and you can interact with me on Facebook. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.